0: Please join me now in uh, 30 seconds of silence as we prepare for our morning. to walk through our every fear A Spirit One Spirit Is in this very room In this very room room
1: I invite you to step into the awareness in this moment of what an eternal blessed moment this is it is eternity not contingent upon space or time I invite you to allow your breath to ground you in the Presence, and in that eternal moment, and let us let us declare our truth and our knowing in this moment, allowing my words to be your words. There is one power, one infinite divine activity, everywhere present, and that is that is God. It is Father, Mother, God. It is a principle. It is a vibration. It is a feeling tone, it is an experience. I cannot get there through my mind. My mind must surrender to the experience. And so I know in this moment that for each and every one of us, myself included, that we are guided, directed, inspired, and moved into that beautiful space. And it is a surrender. It is a willingness, it is an openness, it is an understanding that in surrendering, I'm not giving up, I'm not quitting. In fact, what I am doing is I am aligning myself with this beautiful vibration of the Most High, knowing that everything necessary for you and I to realize, to be, to discover, to put down, whatever it may be, we are guided and directed, that we are in alignment beautifully and wonderfully, that our life is God's life. And so I know that every good thing necessary for you and I to experience this day, not just the words, but the consciousness upon the words, not just the the things being said, but the spaces between what is being said, the space between the notes of the songs, and in that quiet, in that spaciousness, is our opportunity to listen, to pay attention, and to be loved. Let us spend the next period of time in the practice of loving ourselves each and every time something comes into our awareness, unlike that idea of love. Let us know that in that expansion of love, that our gifts become clearer and more available and accessible to not only be shared within ourselves but with other people. How then shall we share our gifts? How then shall we live? What is our gift that we will leave to the family of earth? So I give thanks this day. I give thanks for music. I give thanks for the the tactile experience of life to hug, to laugh, to cry to help, to be helped, to give and receive at the highest level possible. I give thanks for this. I give thanks for this beautiful day. I know that this day is an absolute complete success for each and every one of us because we have come together. We continue to be prayed up, prepared in the grace and the beauty of the truth of who and what we are. And for this, I give thanks, and I invite you to say with me, and so it is. We have been using uh, this beautiful book by Wayne Muller, How Then Shall We Live. And this is our fourth week. Um, I loved, by the way, I love Joe's uh, song this morning, I'm going to love you till the wheels fall off. You know, Joe, I actually have an old truck and I say the same thing to it every morning, so I <laughs> could really relate. <laughs> love you till the wheels fall off. Mr. Tom, wait. But in this, uh, this... Uh, area of the book there are three things that uh, wayne muller addresses in terms of the question what is my gift to the family of earth and first of all the the assumption is that we all believe we have a gift and and i believe that's true my experience and and my journey has been that everyone has a gift but there's some things that happen that allow us to either share that gift more fully or not. And I want to talk about those a bit today because I think it's important to have the discussion that brings into our awareness perhaps uh, areas in our lives where we can, we can live a, 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 a more fully experience of grace and freedom, which is what Dr. Holmes talks about. We are a teaching of freedom. Not that everything goes freedom, but a freedom that we can choose our own filtering of experience in our lives we are free to choose based on those experiences we are free to give dominion or give names to everything that comes into our experience and on and on and on so the first thing is to name our gift even knowing what your gift is and 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 then what do we think about that gift because many times i think that the 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 propensity is to think it has to be something huge. It has to be something that, you know, why should I bother feeding a neighbor when there's world hunger going on and I will wait till I'm ready to to address the problem of world hunger, and on and on and on. At the beginning of this book, there's a beautiful story that he begins with at the beginning of this chapter. He talks about Dottie Montoya, who lives in Santa Fe, New Mexico, where Dr. Reverend Muller's work primarily takes place. And Dottie's son, Roger, has been diagnosed with AIDS. And Dottie's husband, Jose, comes to uh, Reverend Muller and says, "Uh, I want to talk to you. I need a moment. And so he's thinking, because of the diagnosis of AIDS and how painful this is, that that Roger's going to want to express his frustration, anger, bitterness, and resentment around what has happened to his beloved son. But in fact, what happens is Roger, uh, the father, looks at him and says, I noticed on uh, the news that there are children in Rwanda that are starving. And I would like to pull together my friends, and and this man happened to be an apple farmer, and he had many friends who were apple farmers. And I'd like to find a way to share the apples that I have. So completely unexpected to what uh, Reverend Muller expected, this man whose son has been diagnosed, and at the time this happened, that was a death sentence. Didn't want to come and complain about his son and what had come to his doorstep. But instead said, I want to talk to you about apples. And and Muller says, now it was was my turn to be surprised. What did apples have to do with Roger's illness? A few of us up here have been seeing the pictures of the news, all the poor kids in Rwanda, he said. And I, I know a lot of apple growers around here, and we thought we could send some of our apples to them. And so they took their apples and they picked them and they dried them and they, and they shipped them for the children in Rwanda. He saw a need and he knew he had something that could, he could help fill that need. And he did not think twice about offering the gift of apples, even though, as Muller said, I knew that the apple growers had, had had a bad season with heavy losses from early frost. And from what they had, they wanted to give. So isn't it fascinating how many times our gifts emerge, even in crisis, that we look for something to grab onto that has meaning? And so he knew, this father knew that, that the bitterness and probably the disappointment and the sorrow and the mourning that went on with this disappointing news, to carry that forward was not going to assist anyone. And so decided to find a way to be generous. Part of the challenge with gifts, as he said, is that he, and, and Muller says, I've witnessed in their deep conviction that because of their hurt, they have no real gift to give. People believe that. Because I'm hurt, then it has diminished my gift. Because I am flawed in some way, I can't possibly give my gift. That nothing of, I have nothing of value to offer the, the family of earth. He, can, he, he continues, this festering reluctance to comprehend the, the true nature of the gift is, I would argue, more costly than the original abuse. In other words, that we had an experience and we've identified it so strongly that now we carry it forward and it limits our capacity to be in the world in a, in a larger and more uh, expansive, creative and loving way. And, and as he says here, it's, that's more harmful than the original hurt. He said, The sorrows, while poignant and real, are not unbearable. With faith and kindness, patience and wisdom, aiding, aided by the miraculous resilience of the Spirit, these wounds can heal. The greater tragedy is that each person in their own way believes that they have been broken by their suffering. People believe they've been broken by their suffering. I was raised in bo- more... And I was nurtured in a tradition that told me the first thing that I got really clearly was that I was born with original sin that there was something flawed in me and then if I was fortunate enough and I and I and I lined up enough with enough right things in my life I may be saved but as I went along in my life in the way I was domesticated <laughs> the story became the evidence to the contrary began to accumulate I, I was raised by, and my, I adore my mother, love my mother, have done all my work around my mother, because without my mother I wouldn't be here today. But she had a Ph.D. in shaming. This was my mother's primary tool to manage 11 children that were totally out of control. She never called me by my name. She would just say, oh, you selfish little so-and-so. You little Brat. I hope she doesn't listen to the tape. I love you, Mom. <laughs> but the point is, I don't think I'm alone in that. When we feel hurt or afraid, we are reluctant to come to the table, ashamed our gifts are insufficient. I mean, that's just no—that's no—that's just no way to live. But one of the things I love about this teaching is people come in the door and they're they're drawn in by inspiration or desperation, but but the opportunity to start examining a life that that says you don't have, you're not carrying original sin. You are not branded for eternity. That life is not about how much suffering you can endure. We are certain that we must first be, this is very poignant, we are certain that we must first be repaired, detoxified, Perfected. We wait and wait until we're finally filled, finally acceptable, before we feel worthy to offer our gift to others. I've told the story many times when I was studying ministerial training. It was never on my bucket list to be a minister. Who would want to be a minister? Come on. I wanted to be a UPS driver for years and years and years, and I still may go do that if this doesn't work out for me, but (laughs) I was never minister. Never minister. And I would go into my teacher. And I would, every week, I would come up with another reason, evidence why, let me tell you why I'm not fit for this work, what I did this week. And she would just chuckle and laugh at me. And it would get me so frustrated, because I kept waiting for her to just say, okay, get, you're right, you're too broken to continue. And she would just always look at me and say, no, you're really, you're, you're going to be a wonderful minister. And I, oh, God, no, no way. That's just going to be way too much work, too inconvenient. Our sorrow does not contaminate our gift. But it can diminish it. It can diminish our opportunity to share it. Our sorrow can become our gift. From within our tender hurt, there can spring kindness, generosity, and love for others. In our grief and confusion, we we may mistakenly believe we have no offering to bring to the family of earth. But merely suffering cannot extinguish the priceless gift of our true nature. See, our gift, is our, our gift is our true nature. And when, whenever we believe or hold within us that does not allow that expression of our true nature, then we're just, we all lose. We all lose. And so I'm going to share some really neat stuff today that I think is wonderful, that, that I think identifies part of the challenge and struggle we have with sharing our gifts. Well, who, who am I to share my gift? And I have nothing to share because I'm broken. You don't know all the mistakes I've made. Some of us stop our natural impulse to be generous because we're afraid our offering will not be large enough, not impressive enough. But the most beautiful gifts are the small, lovely things. Somebody Last night, somebody gifted, um, Laura and I and, and uh, our friend Eileen. We went down to the Windspear and we saw the, um, Eileen Evers. She is the premier uh, Celtic fiddler in the world. She was actually the fiddler for a river dance. I didn't know that until she was in the second part of that, second act. It was amazing. So I mean, I was like, I was river dancing my way out of the place. It was just incredible. I just, oh, what, what a joyful experience! And I was watching her, and I thought, what compels someone to go down a path that says, you know, I'm gonna, I'm in love with the fiddle, and I'm gonna play the fiddle. And, and I mean, at some point, you just play the fiddle because you love the fiddle. Who would know the joy and the celebration? And everyone were on their, was on their feet at the end. They brought these kids in from the Brooks School of Dance or a uh, knock. Knox School of Dancing here in Edmonton and these young and it was amazing it was just incredible It just take your breath away I mean there's something visceral about that I was just shaking I was just so I was just so caught up by it in joy and I thought oh my god you know those musicians are up there and one alone is is magnificent and then they come together and their gift is just this collective uh, feast banquet of joy and celebration and artistry oh it just takes your breath away. It's like, oh my gosh, I am changed forever. But it's each person coming together, sharing their gift. And so part of it is naming our gift. What is our gift? Because it can be large, it can be small, it can be many things. A gift is like a seed. It, is not an, it may not be an impressive thing. It is what can grow from the seed that is impressive. But if we don't plant the seed, nothing can happen. If we don't talk about possibility in our lives, we get, then we maintain the status quo, and that's fine. If that interests you, it doesn't interest me a whole lot. I think we're here to be productive and creative and impactful in this world of, of, of darkness that says that you are born with original sin, that you are flawed in some capacity and therefore you need to spend the rest of your time while you're alive um, making, uh, performing acts of penance and begging for forgiveness and working your way into some realm. doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. Heaven is here and now. There's not a geographic location that we earn our way into. It is our consciousness that we work with upon this planet. And if you look deeply into even the, the teachings of the, uh, the master teacher from Nazareth, it's exactly what he was saying. But because his, his insight and his awareness and his consciousness was so far ahead of the rest of the population, people had to, to find ways to find a foothold in it. And there's nothing wrong with that. But that's just not a very big idea. You know, offer up your sins for the poor souls in purgatory. I heard that every week from my mom. I mean, I felt bad for those guys, but what is me offering up my soul? I just, I didn't get it. Really? Okay, mom. There's a wonderful story in here um, about giving and receiving. Because a lot of times we get into this idea, the other challenge we have is we want to give and want to give. But once we start, the belief is once I give, I'll never receive. Why would I be generous with what I have to give, because then I won't have. And he tells the story of a young man. Uh, it's uh, Professor Robert Coles. And he was talking about being trained at Harvard, and he started to go out and do his uh, work his, uh, his work with the students out in the world. He became a therapist and educator. And he was working with a young boy by the name of Billy. And, he, and Billy had made a decision in, in high school that he was going to be a tradesperson his whole life. All he was going to do was trade work because he grew up in a family of tradespeople. And so he just slacked off on his schoolwork. And so Robert Collins started encouraging him and saying, you know, you've got potential and you need to look at this and you, know, you should apply yourself and you might be able to go to university or college and have this amazing life. And so Billy was listening and he listened. Yeah, oh, yeah, okay, yep, yep. And this went on and on and on and, and Billy, none of Billy's behavior was changing. And Robert Coles uh, was going through, the trying to figure out what to do, and he was new, you know, he's still a student and working his way into working with in the real world with what he was passionate about. And Billy came up to him one day and says, I have a question for you. This little boy, you know, this t- teenage boy. And so Colin said he just stood before me until I nodded to, to give him permission to, you know, speak. And he said, why do you come here? The little boy asked why do you come here? And he said, I stood there and I couldn't answer. And I stared over him. I couldn't even make eye contact with him. And I went back to my professor, he said, and I asked him this question. And the professor said, yeah, good question. And what he realized, that it took him a while to figure out why he comes there. Because he was in the mindset, he was just there to give and give and give. He was there to fix. That in fact, what brought him there, there was nothing in it for him other than he was there to fix And he said, the next time I saw Billy, after I thought about this for quite a time, he said, I used my own words to echo what my professor had guided me in. He said, I like coming to this school. I liked leaving the place where I lived, the college dormitory, filled with talkative, aspiring, and not always humble young men. And I liked especially stopping on my way back to that world for some strong coffee and some Italian pastry at a nearby eating place. Billy liked the last bit of information, liked my thoroughly indirect suggestion of the nurturance I was getting. See what the little boy wanted to know what's in it for you? And many times we don't think there should be anything in it for us. I think it's part of the, the apprehension we have about uh, giving anything. If I give, and, and, and if I'm asked to give, I've always got to be of service. I've watched it, I've gone through it myself. You know, you, how you work a volunteer to death. Done it myself. And then you just quit the, the community. Very mindful of it. But it's very easy to do because you think it's your, your role is to give and give and give and you give and give and give and finally the tank's empty because you're not receiving anything. I'm going to ask, one, who would like to come up here and just simply, for the rest of my talk, simply inhale? No exhales, just simply inhale the whole time. <laughs> Any takers? Well, if you, you think about it. If you'd like to come on up, I'll create a space for you here and we'll watch how long you're... We'll catch you if you start to go over it, don't worry. So here's another element about it. It is the giving and the receiving. The giving and the taking. There's a rich web of giving and receiving, a deep ecology of give and take that permeates all of life. On biological, social, political, and spiritual levels, we are always part of something that gives and receives oxygen, food, clothing, shelter, goods, services, prayers, morning light, dew on the grass, touch, color, moisture, music, love. Love. You know, 1,500 people showed up last night to, to receive this music. And, and you know, there was something in it for the musicians. The joy of sharing their gifts, the joy of all the, those days and pra- of hours of practice, devotion to their instruments, the dancers, these young kids, it was just adorable. I mean, they were just flying across that stage. It was like, oh, my gosh. I mean, if there's a heaven, I was in it last night. I just kept crying, it was just so beautiful. And, and so, if the audience doesn't show up, I mean, you should see me in here when this hall is empty, because I do these talks every day, but nobody shows up except on Sunday. <laughs> not true, but I mean, does it not make sense if we're not here to share this experience? It's not as rich, it's not as, as potent and powerful and wonderful, and your consciousness is influencing how things uh, show up for me. It's fascinating, the collaboration of that. But that requires trust and agreement and knowing that all is well. Generosity's aim is twofold. We finally free ourselves and others we give when we give freely to others. We free ourselves when we give freely to others. When I talk about our, our pledge program here and this idea around money and income and things like that. What I'm teaching is spiritual practice, generosity of finances, of time, and talent, and treasure are spiritual practices. And what they do is they change us. And that's the the juice of it, that's the beauty of it. So I have this wonderful lady that's influencing my life right now by the name of Brene Brown. And I, I spent some time this morning with Brene on, on a book on tape that I thought was lovely. And it was so perfect for what we're talking about today because I think what she's addressing on this planet is so powerful. Because when it comes to giving and receiving, these ideas of, well, do I have a gift and why should I give a gift and all this, what, what limits us? And I'll tell you what, it, what I think is one of the core issues that we all have to look at is shame. I was raised by a, a woman at a PhD in shame. And, 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 and that was her tool, and I get it. And, and, and what I know about this, as Brene Brown says, is that shame, she uses the metaphor of gremlins. Remember the movie Gremlins by Steven Spielberg? I couldn't even watch that movie. I was an adult when it came out. I said, I can't, I can't, I'm going to have nightmares about these creepy little guys that are doing all these horrible things. I'm not watching, because I don't like horror films anyway. But anyway, so she talks about the gremlins. which She calls it the hustle for worthiness. She talks about it with her writing. She's a speaker and a writer, and she's written many, many wonderful books. She's, a just, she's starting to emerge upon the planet. It's, we're ready for her work uh, in a big way. And she talks about, for her, speaking before people is very easy. She loves to get up and speak before people. The challenge for her is, that, is the writing. And so the gremlins in her life around her writing tell her, who are you to write? You suck. You can't write. She said, for her, talking is a joy, writing is a necessity, because when you have a message, you want to communicate it to as many people as possible. But the gremlins in her head say, writers don't leave a dangling parsnable. There's something wrong with you. And then the gremlins, and she said, those are the gremlins around writing for me. She says that, she also uses the term uh, dementors from Harry Potter. The dementors in Harry Potter, they suck every ounce of lightness out of you. And that's the voice of Shame. Shame is, if you ask people about shame, number one, they'll typically say, I have no idea what you're talking about. You must be talking about my friend over here. Or they'll say, I know all about it and I'm not talking about it because we don't want to talk about it. You would rather have me do a talk on tithing than on shame. I'm telling you. That's how much we don't want to talk about it. Shame and shame hates being talked about. So just give me 10 minutes. Just give me 10 minutes because what... Brene Brown said "Is that when you, when you deal with shame in the, at the level of the intellect, most people's capacity is 10 minutes, and then they, they get bored. Because we don't want to talk about it. Or, if I walk you into shame, if I, t- if I ask you to go to an experience in your life where you really felt shame and I walk you into it, you can't think anymore because what happens is the frontal cortex up here, the thinking capacity shuts down. You go right into the limbic system where you feel everything. So when you're feeling shame, you can't think. It? It's fascinating to know this. This is great information because I'm going to talk about the antidotes as well. So, so what happens is, and stay with me, we still have nine and a half minutes to go. <laughs> shame, shame sounds like two things. Number one, I'm never good enough. I am never, ever, ever good enough. Universal, uh, Ernest Holmes talked about the universal I'm not enough. Number two, who do you think you are? Who the hell do you think you are? See, my gift is, is I know one, one, 13 thousandths of a second what you're going to say before you say it. Carmion, say something to me. Love. I knew he was going to say that. That's my gift, see? <laughs> that is my spiritual gift, and I know that, so thank you for sharing that with me. It, I knew you were going to say that too. It's incredible. Thank you. I'm never good enough, or who do I think I am? We all have it, we all have shame. Nobody wants to talk about it. But the interesting thing is the more we talk about it, the less we have it. And isn't it interesting that we talk about prayer partners, we talk about spiritual practice, talk about being in integrity with, with someone that can mentor us. Because when we start to talk about our shame, we bring it into the light, it starts to dissolve. It's so powerful. And the more we talk about it, the less we have it. And one of the tools that's really powerful is that, so as a practitioner, when I come to you with a problem or I go to my prayer partner with a problem they don't start telling me, oh, you're horrible, you're broken. I've never had anyone in this tradition do that. I've had people listen to me with compassion and then say, okay, let's set an intention because what would you like to experience now? Let's head in that direction. But but what happens is when we bring empathy to it and we go, oh man, I know exactly what that feels like. Me too, I've done that. I've done that. So let me give you this example. So you have a presentation to do on Friday morning, and you get drunk Thursday night and do not prepare. And you get up the next day and you don't even show up for it. And you say to yourself, oh, I got drunk last night and I'm not prepared. Is that guilt or is that shame? Guilt. If I get up the next morning and I say, you suck. You are an idiot. You are an alcoholic. You are broken. You are a mess. That's shame. There's a huge difference between guilt and shame. Shame says, I am bad and I am wrong. And guilt says, I did something bad. I did something wrong. And what guilt allows is change. Guilt is adaptable. Guilt allows us to say guilty. Yep, you're right, I'm I'm five minutes late. I'm gonna be on time next time. I apologize, I take ownership for it, I take responsibility for it, and it's really important for me to be on time, and I want you to know that I'm gonna do my best next time to be here. But if you're five minutes late and you go, oh my God, I'm just, I'm a, I'm terrible at this. I can't, there's something wrong with me. I'm late all the time. There's something broken in me. And we wallow in that. And and here's what's powerful about shame. Brene Brown says that the prisons are full of young men and women that are so deeply entrenched in shame because what it encourages is addiction, bullying, depression, suicide, aggression, eating disorders, violence. It goes on and on and on. Because it escalates. So if your core belief is that I'm born with an original sin, which I was, and if I tried to carry that forward, that legacy that my parents gave to me out of love and wanted me to be the best I could be, and I know that, but if I carry that, I will guarantee you that if I continue to believe that about myself and not gone about the business of my own exploration, I wouldn't be standing here with you today. Because from that perspective of shame, life just becomes overwhelming. What's the point? I, I am so broken. I have no value to this world for this world and to myself. So guilt is the inverse, it's the antidote. Guilt is, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. Oh, do it again, I'll do better next time. Shame is, I suck, I'm bad, I'm wrong. And it's, it's, it's devastating. Gabor Mate, the, uh, the uh, drug counselor from Vancouver, works on the east end of Vancouver, on, on, down on Hastings Boulevard. Uh, I watched a brilliant interview with him, and he talks about it as, as it, it, what happens with addic- addiction is if a child has six traumatic experiences before the age of seven, which is, you know, in, the, in, the, in the, some of the traditions, the age of reason, they are thousands and thousands of times more susceptible to addiction. They don't even have the capacity to say no. And so what, the, what happens with the addiction is that we're looking to relieve the stress. And so it's very interesting, he said, as we treat it because when we treat it, we tell we, the addict is looking to reduce the stress but the way that we address it is we tell them not only is it stressful to, 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 to feel stressful about life in general but now we're going to increase your stress level because what you're doing is illegal and we're going to put you in jail because you're doing it which just enhances the stress level. And he says it's interesting how we treat this because what happens for a single addict, one addict on average needs to $100 a day to support their, their uh, addiction on the street. And he said, in order to support that, what we know now is they typically have to shoplift about $1,000 worth of merchandise a day. So you have one addict shoplifting $365,000 worth of merchandise a day to support their, their, or a year to support their their habit. Because what the powers that will be say, well, what we do is we prosecute and we put these guys in jail. And he said... The most effective way to deal with it is to understand it and to bring them in, and through compassion and counseling, you slowly wean them into a different behavior. And you administer the drug in a way that's safe until they can move out of that. But until the shame gets unraveled, they're stuck in it. So the way we're treating it is simply enhancing it. And it's fascinating work. And so when we look at the level of merchandise being shoplifted so these guys can support themselves, is it really too expensive? I don't know. But I think it's fascinating. And so let's take it back to the, to, to the acceptable addictions. So you're a workaholic, That's, 30% of Canadians consider themselves workaholics. Acceptable addiction. So if I have a heart attack, I'm stressed out and I go in and I have to have a triple bypass because I've worked myself into that place of stress, the doctors aren't going to say to me, you're an addict, you're a workaholic, we're going to treat you. In fact, I'm going to call the cops, we're going to put you in jail. No, they say, we're going to give you everything you need. But if I don't have the capacity because of trauma at early in my life to say no, and then I, I'm trying to relieve the stress through an addiction, I'm put in jail and prosecuted and put away. And I'm not, and I'm not endorsing, endorsing addiction. What I'm saying is that when we have shame so alive in our lives, it's so hard to show up and give our gifts. And so, so it's so short-sighted to think, well, this, you're bad and wrong. We're going, to, we're going to lock you away. And there are countries that are actually doing this now. But guilt is I've done something wrong, and shame is I am wrong. And it's powerful because we're here to share our gifts. We're here to love one another. All of us have gifts. Last night when I was watching those dancers and musicians, I thought, like, oh my God. The, the, the follow through, the commitment. There's no guarantee when you decide you're gonna be a fiddle player, you're gonna make a nickel with it. I'm just like, I'm, I'm, you know, my, my, my chin is on my chest. I'm like, what keeps people going? You know, there, there had to be years in there of working four or five jobs so I can play my fiddle with no guarantee in sight. What is, and, and God bless them for following that because we become the beneficiaries of that. And that's such a precious, powerful gift. It's wonderful stuff. But isn't that good to know? So then when we start to slip into shame, we go, wait a minute. No, 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 no. That's that old voice of shame. And that, that serves no one. What I'll do is I'll make it a new agreement with myself. He talks about giving our gift, and sometimes our gift succeeds, and sometimes our gift fails. But the project, as he says, is far less important than the offering of the gift. See, the gift in it is the offering of the gift. And the project can always be altered, revamped, restructured, but a gift not offered dies in the heart. This may not be the message we receive in our childhood. Perhaps there were members of our family or other people in your life who said, "We don't need you." I know a lot of people that were told that, "We don't need you. You're not important. Worse even, perhaps, they were said, we do not want you. You are the cause of our problems. You bring us only suffering. Well, that's heartbreaking. But there are people that are all over this planet that have gotten that message. And he says, this was never true, and it's not true now. The family of the earth aches for your gifts. See, I love this teaching. I, I, I love this teaching. <laughs> yeah. Come in, come in these doors. Everything I was told until I walked in the doors of one of these centers was that I was bad and wrong. And I, I felt like I had to sneak around. I hope nobody found me out. Because that was the box I was given to play in. And all of a sudden, I walk in and people say, we see the divinity in you. And people were hugging. It was like, holy crap. I, I never, we didn't hug in my family. We'd slap most of the time. Once in a while, we'd tickle. Slap and tickle, but never hug. I mean it was we just didn't do it. And so when it came in the doors the, the love and the acceptance and I mean I was just like get away from me. You know, do you know who the hell I am? Call my mom, she'll tell you. <laughs> the family of earth aches for your gifts. We all need what you have. We cannot survive unless we join our circle and bring who we are to the gathering. Don't be afraid. That is the phrase that's used in the Bible more than any other phrase, be you not afraid. Don't be afraid of a kind life, a life of spirit, a life of oneness, a life that is fundamentally a courageous life. The courage simply to bring what you have, to bring who you are to your life. Our greatest gift is to allow ourselves to feel alive in this sea, this sea of life, moving with the tides of loving kindness as they move into us, through us, and out of us into others, only to return again and again. The kindness of others fertilizes our souls. They become a part of who we are, and we carry them in their love. I want to just leave you with this beautiful poem at the end of this book. It's by Merritt Malloy, and it was written at a, uh, a friend of Wayne Muller, Peter Falco, died when he was 29 years old. And they read this poem at his uh, memorial. It's just beautiful. It's called Epitaph. When I die, give what's left of me to children and old men who wait to die. When I die, give what's left of me to children and old men that wait to die. And if you need to cry... Cry for your brother walking the street beside you. If you need to cry, cry for your brother walking the street beside you. And when you need me, put your arms around anyone and give them what you need to give to me. When you need me, put your arms around anyone and give them what you need to give to me. I want to leave you something, something better than words or sounds. Look for me and the people that I've known and loved. I want to leave you something better than words or sounds. Look for me in the people I've known or loved. And if you cannot give me away, at least let me live in your eyes and not on your mind. And if you cannot give me away, at least let me live in your eyes and not on your mind. You can love me most by letting hands touch hands, by letting bodies touch bodies and by letting go of children that need to be free. You can love me most by letting hands touch hands, by letting bodies touch bodies, and by letting go of children that need to be free. Love doesn't die. People do. So that when all that's left of me is love... Give me away. Love doesn't die, people do. So that when all that's left of me is love, give me away. I'll see you at home in the earth. Blessings. Thank you.